You're listening to Flip This Risk, where it's time for a new conversation about risk management. From the boardroom all the way to the barbershop down the street, you can overcome fear of risk and thrive. Join your host, Dr. Karen Hardy, for candid conversations with industry leaders from across the globe. Dr. Karen brings her experience as an industry thought leader, best-selling author, and Apex Award winner to each episode. On the forefront of today's risk management strategies, helping leaders from small and large businesses overcome risk and feel confident in their choices. Let's start the show. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Karen Hardy, and welcome to Flip This Risk Podcast, where we interview high achievers about the relationship with risk-taking and how it influences their leadership resiliency. Of course, you can find out more at flipthisriskpodcast.com. And today, we're talking with Carlos Alvarenga, who is the author of the book, The Rules of Persuasion, um, How the World's Greatest Communicators Convince, Inspire, Lead, and Sometimes Deceive. So it's a very interesting topic, and I'm glad to have you here, Carlos. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let me start out with the general question. What is persuasion, and why is it important, and particularly right now? Persuasion, the definition is an interesting question. Uh, the, the book came about because of a, a long experience. I had coaching senior leaders in both nonprofit and corporate uh, roles uh, on public communication, especially persuasion. And I always started with, can you define persuasion? And every person I ever coached had a really hard time putting it into a very specific definition. And what I tell them is that this, this word was defined over 2,500 years ago by the philosopher Aristotle, who said, persuasion is a demonstration that something is true or seems to be true. So persuasion is a demonstration of a truth. It is truth that persuades, I always say, not us. And so our job is to convince someone that something is true, assuming we're dealing with a rational person, right? They will be persuaded by that truth. So then what you're saying is that whoever is in a position of being this persuader must already understand their own truth. That's absolutely right. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that a reason why people struggle sometimes to persuade is that they haven't taken a step back and asked themselves, what must fundamentally be true for someone to believe me? And I'll give you a good example. Nike, who I write about in the book, has what I think is the world's greatest tagline, just do it. One of the things that makes that tagline as effective is there are some foundational truths that precede it. For example, exercise is good for you, right? Nike has never run an ad saying you should exercise or with the benefits of exercise. They assume that you believe that. They run ads that convince you not to let anything stop you from exercising, i.e. just do it. And so from, there are truths that are what we persuade, but there are also things that must exist beforehand that allow us to be persuasive. And a lot of times what I find is that people haven't really thought about what would somebody believe about me uh, or what needs to believe about me before they will accept what I have to say to them. Are you saying that, and that's very interesting, are you saying that there has to be some level of reputation or exposure to you as an individual before people buy into what you're trying to, in a sense, sell them or persuade them to believe because it is centered around truth. Yeah, not exactly. It, the, the, what I'm saying is that there are things that, that we should understand that the audience must accept even before they hear one word from me. And I'll give you another example from the book. I, I, I lectured at a 
prestigious business school on the East Coast, and which is located in a poor city, uh, mostly black community. Uh, they, they, they talked to me about a project where they were asked to go into the community to convince the parents to, to have their kids wear helmets when they're cycling. And so these very bright, a lot of them are physicians, MBA students, right? Prepare presentations, I had all the material ready to go out and persuade the parents. The, 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 they organized a town hall, and from the from the first moment, it was a catastrophe. Things didn't go well, and what they didn't realize that that they assumed that the community believed the institution had the good interests of the community at heart. What they hadn't realized is that the, there was a lot of resentment in this community against the institution. They thought of it as elitist, uh, had a racist past in many cases, and so they they didn't accept that what the student had to say was even for their own good. So the, I said, if you had just taken a step back and asked yourself, what must fundamentally be true? And one thing was that the community trust the institution, which they thought was a given, but in fact, wasn't really the case. Mm -hmm. That was why they were almost doomed from the word go. And I see that in other roles too, where people assume, okay, um, people, people believe this about me or about the company, about the market we're in. And they create messages with those assumptions, but those assumptions turn out to be wrong. And you see almost right away because somebody begins to speak and already people begin to roll their eyes or they don't understand where this is coming from. So uh, one of the, I would say, if you're, if you're struggling persuading a team, an organization, a colleague, or even just a friend or family member, a great exercise is take a step back and say, is, am I missing something? Is there something that I believe to be true that my audience doesn't? And if so, maybe I need to take a step back and think about how do I communicate that and persuade them of that anterior or that preceding truth before I get to the message that I want to deliver. Right. So if you're within an organization, it's in, what you're saying is that it's important to really do your homework, um, especially when you're prepared to address a specific audience. You need to understand what their um, beliefs are ahead of time. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that would work, right? That would help. And then come with them with an alternative uh, option in terms of how things can be seen. So what, what really makes a persuasive argument powerful and convincing? Well, Aristotle says three things persuade and only three things persuade, which, I, which is what, what I found fascinating would let me to write the book because I wanted to explain his framework, which is a very old framework, but I think it, it's still true. And I think it applies to all forms of human communication. In my book, I talk about art, I talk about hip hop, I talk about poetry, I talk about theater, film. And what Aristotle says that there, there are three, what I call modes of persuasion. The first one is the character of the speaker. Who are you? What does the audience know and believe about you? And, and there are seven pieces to the character as a persuasive mode. The second is argument. So logic, witnesses, proofs, PowerPoint slides, spreadsheets, right? The, the kind of hard data that you might bring to a conversation. Interesting enough, what I find, especially in business, is people over rely on this because they're comfortable with it. But Aristotle says, this is the hardest thing for an audience to follow. Mm -hmm. It's emotion. What does the audience feel as they listen to you speak, as they, as they perceive your message? And I find that this is one thing that almost no one uses because they're afraid of it or they don't know how to do it. And so the great communicator, right, is able to combine a, a persuasive character, a character that people like, that people want to believe, that people believe is speaking for them for their own good, right? Arguments that are solid and believable. And then 
creates an emotional effect in the audience that makes them feel good or makes them feel whatever it is that the speaker wants them to feel, whether it's inspired, angry, right? Uh, you know, contemplative, uh, mm -hmm. that issue is the best messages. And then going back even to just do it, and I talked about this in the book, it has all three elements, just that one phrase. Uh, the best messages are really able to bring those three things together. And that's what makes someone a persuasive communicator or some institution a persuasive communicator. Um, what role does time play in your ability to be effectively persuasive? For instance, if you're doing your in your day-to-day -day organization, you have a one-hour meeting, you know, what elements of your model are useful and practical in helping or individuals be persuasive? Again, we go back to Nike, just do it, three words. Mm -hmm. I talk in the book about the, 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 the rise of, or the use of wall posters in China during the, during the rise of the Communist Party when they first spoke because the, it was a mostly illiterate population. And so it took decades to deliver that message. Uh, a message can be delivered in a few minutes. I talk mm -hmm. about, in the book about Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, it's 33 minutes long. Uh, a very complex, persuasive message that's delivered in only a matter of minutes. So time isn't really the issue. It's the skill of the communicator that is the critical factor in making someone a persuasive speaker or a message a persuasive message. So how can someone build their persuasive skills? I think there are two things. Everyone who I coach from day one, I say, I, I would like for you to keep a, what I call a persuasion journal. Once you begin to understand how persuasion works, you become better at noticing it in your environment, right? So in an ad, in a movie, in a scene, in a commercial, in a colleague, right? And in the book, what I explain is that these three modes each has seven elements. And so these 21 elements make up what I call the periodic table of persuasion. What does that mean? It means that all persuasion to me is chemistry. They're formulations. And so what great communicators do is they combine elements of emotion, storytelling, narrative, something about themselves, a little bit of, of uh, you know, information, and they mix it up. And the best formulations continue century after century, right? There are things you can read in 2000 year old text that could have been said yesterday because the formulation was great 2000 years ago and it's still great today. And so what I explain to people is understand the elements, how they work the way you would take a chemistry class and then start to look at it all around you, make a note of it mentally or even write it down. The better you get at spotting it, the better you get at using it yourself. You're listening to Flip This Risk Podcast with Dr. Karen Hardy, and we'll be right back with more great conversation after this. Do you want to write a book but don't know where to start? No worries. We've got you covered. Become a published risk management author with Flip This Risk Books. Flip This Risk Books is an international award-winning book series written by industry subject matter experts and practitioners, just like you. Want to build your professional brand and authority in the field? Write a chapter for our next book series. Visit flipthisriskbooks.com. And people shouldn't overlook their own experiences too. What I found is that some of the best communicators who are very persuasive, they talk about other things that may 
not have an apparent relationship with what they're talking about, but they're able to bring it into the conversation. And as you said, mix it up a little bit, right? To create that formula where that, whereby people are, you know, confident in what you're saying and they actually buying you and, and your message. You're absolutely right. And in fact, it, it, Aristotle says of the three modes, right? Character, mm-hmm. emotion. Perhaps the most powerful is character. There, there are there are elements in character that make us want to believe someone. And again, when I coach people, I find that off too often people don't want to talk about themselves. They think, well, I shouldn't. They've been taught I I shouldn't be part of the story. And I think this is fundamentally wrong. I I think that leaving your story yourself out of the message is like having a mask with no sale, right? And and time and again, as I've coached people, we've looked for elements in their history, in their upbringing. Mm-hmm. In, in how they were, how their parents raised them to be, right? Uh, origin, for example, is very, maybe the most powerful thing of all. We come from the same place. You know, how are you created as a, as, a, as a character? So bringing yourself in the right way and in the right form, again, the right formulation into the message is a fantastically powerful thing. In fact, an exercise we do is I, I ask people, I want you to go home and over the next week, Pick your favorite novel or poem and then come back and persuade me that this is a great work of literature, but you can't talk about it. You can only talk about yourself. Mm-hmm. And they struggle. They, they don't know what to, how to do. And then I say, okay, now imagine if I told you this, right? When I went home, I spent the whole week researching, thinking about the question, et cetera, et cetera, making this great effort to come back to you with the right answer. The fact that I took the problem seriously the fact that my character is one of diligence, the fact that I, I did the difficult things to be successful, even before I tell you the name of the book, you have become predisposed to at least consider what I'm going to say, if not be persuaded. And so uh, once they hear this, suddenly the light bulb goes off, that mm-hmm. who I am is a powerful force when used correctly, right, in persuading an audience of something. So the second one you mentioned, what was the second one again? I know Carrie's the first one. The second one is argument. So argument. argument. So you said we rely too much on that one. Why would you say that? Because argument is hard to, to get right and hard to follow. And I'll give you a good example. So my wife's a scientist. And, and I know you worked at NIH for around scientists. And if you've ever listened to a scientist give a presentation, for some reason, they're often about 20 minutes long. And one minute for introductions, one minute for say goodbye, a couple minutes for questions. You have 15 minutes of hardcore science, medicine, physics, chemistry. And it's amazing that that her colleagues can follow it and they can follow because they've been trained for years to be able to follow complex arguments in science. The average person is lost after two or three minutes. And so what happens? What I say, it's the five to one rule, right? Think of five years of experience for every minute of continuous high-level logical argument, which most people don't do that. So what happens is that even if you've got everything right, even if the formulas are correct, statistics are correct, the audience, if, if they're not trained to, to follow this, begins to get lost. And so what happens after a few minutes, and we've all been there, right? We don't know what someone is talking about. And so, in fact, I say, the more you are persuaded by data, and math and science, the least persuasive you're going to be to the average person was the exact opposite. 
So sometimes what it takes is converting statistics and data into narrative, into stories, right? And suddenly what was complex or difficult to absorb becomes easier to understand and of course, more persuasive. Yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense. And I, I can see why, you know, most of the technical experts, right? And we live in that area of argumentative and using the data and the metrics and that's what we are comfortable with, but, you know, persuasion forces us to leave our comfort zone. <laughs> so, um, and then the third one was emotion. How do you reflect that? So emotion is, is the most difficult one, I think, to understand and to get right. And uh, most people are afraid of emotion, We're, especially in certain cultures like Anglo-Saxon. Mm -hmm. We try to take emotion out of the workplace or out of professional settings, right? But uh, I think, again, this is a mistake. This isn't to mean that you're supposed to be emotional. It means that you understand what, what you want your audience to feel. And I talk about seven creating mm -hmm. an audience. For example, inspiration is an emotion I think people use all the time as a word, but haven't quite grasped what it means. To me, inspiration uh, and is the creation of a desire for something that is missing. That is what it means to be inspired. You were fine two minutes ago. You mm -hmm. thought you were complete. Suddenly, the communicator convinced you that you're missing something. Right? And I talk about a scene from a, a Denzel Washington movie where he's a coach, and he's coaching. Right. Right? And you know the movie. And so he he convinces them that perfection is the only standard he will accept. And guess what? You're not perfect. His inspiring message is the creation of a gap, mm -hmm. no longer there, right? Or suddenly not there. It's like if you see somebody in the street and you, you know, quote unquote, fall in love or infatuation. Well, you were fine two minutes ago, but now you're missing that person. You lack that person in your life. So if you want to inspire, quote unquote, you must persuade someone that something is missing. Excellence, a PhD, right? A person, uh, physical fitness, you name it. And so Aristotle says to be good in emotion, we should understand what, what an emotion is, how is it created, and then how does it work in the minds of the audience once it is created? And that's what we work together oftentimes. It's, okay, what emotion do you want someone to feel as they listen to you speak about whatever the uh, issue happens to be, right? You know, is it joy? Is it positive? Is it negative? You want them to take action. Um, you want them to reflect. Some emotions speed us up. Anger, for example, causes the brain to accelerate. Inflation mm -hmm. causes it to decelerate. So you want to slow the audience's mind down or do you want to accelerate it? And so these kinds of questions, the great communicators have either innately or through practice and technique, developed the ability to, with surgical precision sometimes, create a certain emotion in mm -hmm. order, which is going to then um, reinforce character and argument. Right? Mm -hmm. Emotion is best used to reinforce the other two things. And that's that's why uh, oftentimes emotion, when it's used in a movie, for example, it's just at the end. The most emotional scenes are, are typically at the close to the end of the movie. Why? Because something has been set up over the course of the film and then the emotional package is delivered to sort of seal the deal, right? With exactly. The Rom-com or an action movie or a drama, right? These are technical um, formulations that movie directors know innately.
You're listening to Flip This Risk Podcast with Dr. Karen Hardy, and we'll be right back with more great conversation after this. Do you want to write a book but don't know where to start? No worries. We've got you covered. Become a published risk management author with Flip This Risk Books. Flip This Risk Books is an international award-winning book series written by industry subject matter experts and practitioners just like you. Want to build your professional brand and authority in the field? Write a chapter for our next book series. Visit flipthisriskbooks.com. And these three steps, these should always be in this sequence character, argument, emotion, or it all depends on what? No, it, in fact, they they work independently of each other. And so, okay. again, think of, of chemistry. The it's, it's really up to the communicator to skillfully decide of the three things. Do I need all three? What is the right order? And... Uh, and then what, when do I want you to experience any one of these elements that I talk about in the book? So let me ask you this question, and um, that can go for any leader, whatever your style is, right? So let me ask you this. Um, let's talk about personality types and trying to be persuasive. Uh, are only extroverts persuasive or can introverts be persuasive? Because some people aren't comfortable, right? Um, getting in front of people to be persuasive. So how do you handle that versus introvert versus extrovert? A anyone can, can be persuasive if they understand the rules. And I'll give you an example. I coached a woman who was an, uh, a very distinguished architect and she retired from a very successful, you know, she was a Harvard Princeton alum, had, had, been, had a great career. And she decided to start a nonprofit in, in Virginia uh, to bring music to kids after school. Okay, a wonderful program. She had a, a, a kind of partner and the partner was an extrovert, a musician, you can imagine a big personality, right? Um, and so he tended to kind of get a lot of the attention. But she, I worked with her because she was gonna to go to Washington to become the chief lobbyist of this organization. So her style was analytical, quiet, uh, deeply thoughtful. So what I explained to her was, listen, using that character in the right way can be just as, if not more powerful than, than the loud, right, uh, more extroverted person. Mm -hmm. When you speak, you bring an authority to the message that that other person doesn't. And, and we see examples of, of folks who, who, are, who don't speak often or are quiet. And when they do, it's startling. Right when they do, it brings force and conviction. So I think there is no one style that dominates a, a persuasive setting. I don't think there is a style. I, I think that you can find examples of of people who say too much or say it too loudly and lose their effect, and people who speak very quietly or who speak occasionally. And when they do, it's a fantastically persuasive message. It can actually be a strategy to be Absolutely. quiet. <laughs> so, yeah. The question of style is important, right? Because that's one thing to talk about in the book is you make stylistic choices and that's a stylistic choice to be loud, to be soft, to speak often, to speak only infrequently. Those are choices that a great communicator, again, makes in response to message and audience. In order to get good at this, people are encouraged to practice, right? Just Absolutely. try to in institute some of the 
strategies and keep practicing until you get your what, whatever result that you're seeking? It's absolutely critical. I, I explained in, in the book in that this is a, we, you know, Aristotle says that persuasion is something called a techne, right? And so techne is a word in Greek that we don't have a translation from. I mean, you also sometimes see the art of rhetoric, but that's not really the right word. It's the techne of rhetoric. And a techne is an art with a practical end. So it has rules, it has techniques. There is always, and, we all, and we're surrounded by opportunities, right, to practice our persuasive skills. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, listen, Carlos, that's some great information. I really appreciate you joining me today to talk about persuasion and how to be persuasive. And uh, maybe I believe a lot of people feel a, a big load off their shoulders. Now they understand a little bit more that is something that anyone can do despite whatever your personality type is, but it's something that you can practice and eventually become good at. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to thank everyone for joining me today on Flip This Risk Podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Hardy, and I'll catch you next time. Helping you feel secure is our strategy. All the way from the boardroom to the barbershop down the street. Subscribe at flipthisriskpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.